Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As you know, this podcast is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. This month, we're going to be promoting Mid-Atlantic by Royfield Brown. Royfield is formerly our glorious leader, and his show is the news and views from one side of the Atlantic from the point of view of the other, which is to say he has English and American pundits on, and they discuss the events of the week in each other's countries. Uh, He has now expanded to Canada. Obviously, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, which makes his show particularly interesting. So give it a listen. Check it out. And check out all the other great shows at the Agora Podcast Network. As with the previous episode, I should probably warn you all up front here that this episode is about sex. While it is not pornographic in nature, please listen under that advisement. I know I've gotten a couple donors and patrons. I hope you all excuse me if I skip one more episode to thank everybody. I want to get this to Andrew in as timely a fashion as possible. In the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts. Those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. But this is not their story. The Monastery of Santa Fabronia, 2nd of October, 1457. After visiting the Monastery of San Giovanni di Castagneto in Reggio Calabria, we went to the Monastery of the Nuns of Santa Fabronia, which is about a mile away from the Monastery of San Menas. First we observed that it was very well built, but that the monastery was without a cloister except for a few little houses. There the abbess stayed with her father and mother, a young woman, and a boy, whom she maintained for the sake of her soul, along with an old man and his wife. We also observed that she has no nuns, because no one, not even the woman who stays with her, wishes to assume the habit. We examined Sico Legano, the chaplain of the said monastery, on oath in the following way. First, when asked whether this abbess knew her letters, he said that she did not know her letters, and therefore did not say the office each day, but she does say a little as far as she knows it. When asked why she does not learn her letters, since she is young and had been ordered by her predecessor, the abbot of San Filaret, to go to Reggio to learn her letters, insofar as it contained in her acts, he said that she was not able to do it because of the fees and also because of the pestilence which ruled in those parts at the time. When asked whether she served the goods of the monastery well, he said that she served them well. When asked if she provides for the nuns, he said that she does not have any nuns, but that she provides for and treats well those whom she maintains, whom we mentioned above. When asked if she preserves her honor, he said that she preserved it. When asked if she observes the rules of the house, he said that she observes them well as much as she can. When asked if she goes outside the monastery, he said that she rarely goes out, and when she does, she is always in the company of her parents. When asked if she is restrained in her behavior, he said yes. 
When asked if she has a servant, he said that whatever she possesses belongs to the monastery. When asked if she has an okinomos or proctor, he said that she has her father, and in the absence of her father, she has brothers. When asked if she observes the fasts, he said yes. When asked if she confesses, he said that she confesses during Lent and during the 40 days of Christmas, at least. When asked if she wears the habit, he said she wears it. When asked if the office is said in the church, he said that the office is not said except for the Mass only twice a month. When asked if the office of the dead is said, he said no. When asked about the monastery's income, he said that the returns of the said church rise to six unike, or forty ducats. The incomes are contained in wine, oil, rents, chestnuts, and acorns. Antonius Pamus, when asked on oath if she serves the good of the church, spoke as did the first witness in effect. When asked if she preserves her honor, he said the same thing as the first. When asked about all the other things, he said the same thing as the first witness. Domna Pelagia, abbess of the aforesaid monastery, when asked under oath if she is literate, said she knows a little, and this is what we too observed, and the little she knows she learned with the abbess of San Demetrio in Reggio, and she would have learned more if the war between the Aragonese and Venetians had not occurred. Later on, because she did not have the opportunity, she was unable to learn more, but says the office as best as she has knows and has learned it. When asked if Mass is celebrated, she said that it is celebrated twice a month, just as the priest the previous witness had said. When asked if she preserves the property of the monastery, she said that she tries as best she can to preserve the property of the monastery as much as possible. When asked if she benefited the monastery in some way, she said that there was a certain church of San Nicola. The church had a barn that had been destroyed. She rebuilt it, and also had built certain small cells in the church. When asked if she holds property, she said no. When asked if she had nuns, she said that she could not have them because the monastery is in a forest. When asked about the value of the said monastery, she said that it is worth 40 ducats. When asked in what kinds of things the renders of the aforesaid monastery consist, she said that it is paid in grain, wines, rents, and there is one garden which is worth two unica annually. When we made an inventory of the movable goods of the aforesaid church, which consists of the following, one book of gospels, one book of epistles, one Anastasimos, a liturgical book for Easter, one Psalter, one Paraclicton, a liturgical book for Byzantine chant, one Book of Prophets, one Athanosian Book of Questions and Answers by Astasius the Siniate, one Menologion for the three months of September, October, November, one Menologion for the four months of December, January, February, and March, another Menologion for the five months of April, May, June, July, and August, Triodion, liturgical book for the period including the weeks of preparation, Great Lent, and Holy Week, Horologion, Book of Hours, one missal, one book of the office of St. Fibronia, one chalice with paten of pewter, one pair of white vestments. It has certain altar cloths. It has one mattress, one cover, one pillow, one pair of linens, one carpet, two tablecloths, two napkins, one cauldron, one spit, one large cauldron, three washcloths, one chain for hanging something, one beam, and other housewares. It also has in the territory of Kalana one house in which there are three barrels of six measures each. When all this was completed, we admonished her as is customary, and gave her the chapters written below that she should observe in the following manner. First, we order and command you under the charge of holy obedience and under the penalty reserved to our judgment that you absolutely find a teacher who will teach you how to read. At the very least, he should teach you how to read the divine office. We order you under the same penalty that at the very least Mass be celebrated in the church weekly, twice a month for the dead and twice a month on Sunday. We order you under the same penalty that you try as hard as you can to find a nun whom you may keep with you for company. We order you under the same penalty to wear a wool shirt. 
We order you under the same penalty to say the divine office in the best way you know how, and as a substitute for what you do not know, say for Martins, ten Our Fathers and ten Hail Marys, and at prime, terse, sexts, nuns, you say five of each, each hour, at Vespers, ten, at Compline, eight, and for the souls of the founder of the said church, and of all its benefactors, and also for the well-being of the Lord King, the highest pontiff, and the proctor of our order, and for the dead, you say fifteen Our Fathers each day. We order you under the same penalty to create an inventory of all the goods of the said church and a notebook, clear and comprehensible, about the income and expenditures of the said church. We order you under the same penalty to have a copy of the chapters of the general chapters approved in Rome, and to read them at least once a month. We order you under the same penalty to own the rule as abbreviated by the Most Reverend Lord Cardinal of Nicaea, and you read it twice a month. We order you under the same penalty to have a copy of the chapters of the provincial chapter held at Castrovillari, and you read them once a week. We order you under the same penalty that you observe everything that the rule for our order orders you to observe. Issued in the monastery of Santa Fabronia on 3rd October, in the 6th indication in 1452, in the third year of the pontificate of the Most Holy Father in Christ and our Lord, Lord Calixtus III, Pope by Divine Providence. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is episode 65, Women Part 2, Mary and Eve Part 2, More About Sex. This is part two of an episode of Women in the Middle Ages in relation to their sexual status. I do recommend you listen to part one, because I really did just pretty much write this script and then cut it in half. Anyway, so we've discussed attitudes towards sex when performed by prostitutes, and the relationships society had towards sex between low-status women and their employers. What was the attitude towards sex amongst people who were neither prostitutes nor nuns, because we'll get to nuns later? What about common people and amongst the nobility and all that? Well, as you might expect, many held attitudes that were in line with the theological views espoused by the church. But, as you would also probably expect, and as we learn in literature and other documentary evidence from the time, many people had views of sex that did not line with those of the church. As we said at the top, the church's view was that the only legitimate kind of sex was that which occurred within marriage, and even that could be dicey, with prostitution available as a sinful but necessary escape valve. That said, for most of the history of early Christianity, the church had very little jurisdiction over marriage. It really wasn't until the 1200s that the church started to formulate a concrete doctrine that asserted theological control over marriage and set out standards for what made a marriage acceptable. This means that while the church said a lot of things from very early on about marriage being a sacred loving space where sex might be okay under a very specific set of circumstances, ultimately this idea came from a very legalistic place. Most of society viewed marriage as just that, a legal arrangement in which one man was assigned a woman by contract for the purpose of legitimate sexual gratification, household chores, the acquisition of sundry goods, properties, family alliances, and heirs. The partners weren't expected to necessarily have anything in common, but were expected to treat each other kindly out of a sense of duty. We will have a lot more to say about marriage in the episode about women in the legal system, but from a cultural standpoint, it's worth commenting here on how this all intersects with the biggest theme that we've met across all our episodes. In the Middle Ages, who you were in society was based on your reputation and on your relationships. Your family was your identity, and being tied by bonds of friendship or loyalty to specific people could raise or lower your place in society. 
Sex with women had a very important role to play in this social order. Legitimate sex, in the form of marriage, formed permanent bonds between family and alliance groups. This kind of bond was so important that a violation of this bond in the form of legal sex damaged the reputation not only of the individuals involved, but also the entire family structure. Or at least it did if a woman did the sex. For some reason. The following is a quote from a book called The Good Wife of Paris, which we'll probably talk about more later. Quote, you must instruct your friends, and especially your daughters, and tell them, lovely lady, that it is a certainty that all qualities are diminished in a maiden or woman who lacks virginity, continence, or chastity. Neither wealth, nor beauty, nor intelligence, nor noble lineage, nor any other excellence can ever raise a reputation for vice, particularly in a woman if she has committed it once, or even been suspected of it. So, for this reason, many honorable women have kept themselves not only from the act, but especially from suspicion, so that they might have the title of virginity. Quote read by listener Moshe. As a podcast footnote, apologies if I pronounced your name wrong. We've only ever interacted online. Oh, end podcast footnote. All of this didn't leave much room for love, at least not the way we think about it. Sure, wives were expected to love their husbands, but it is the kind of love that comes from duty and from a patient acceptance of one's place in the world. At best, it came from the place of respect that a lower-status person might have for a higher-status person, like how Sam felt about Frodo. Husbands were expected to sleep with and be faithful to their wives, but sort of in the way that we are supposed to take care of our textbooks in elementary school? This one is mine, and I should care for her, because it is my duty, and if I don't, she will suffer, and that wouldn't be fair, and, you know, whatever. Someone who was actually passionately attracted to their spouse was often seen as extraordinarily lucky, and therefore doomed, or else this affection was felt to be unseemly. Needless to say, neither the loveless marriage nor strict adherence to sexual norms were universal experiences. Christine de Pizan, one of the only non-religious female authors of this period, reports deeply loving her deceased husband, giving a detailed account of their relationship that does not conform to any of the literary tropes of her era or genre. More on Christine de Pizan in a bit. On the other hand, we of course have the celebrated lovers of Heloise and Abelard. For those who do not know the story, it is a cracker of a yarn, all the better for being true, and I do encourage you to look up a more full description, but I honestly can't help retelling their story at least in brief. Here goes. Abelard was a brilliant philosopher in 11th century Paris. We know this because he told us, which says most of what you need to know about Abelard. He heard tell of a very smart daughter of a minor Breton nobleman who was living in Paris. They had a meet-cute in the market, and he determined to have her. In an extremely creepy fashion, he managed to talk her uncle into hiring him as a private tutor, living in the household. As an ambitious young cleric, he was of course trustworthy, since he would need to become a priest to advance his career. What Abelard had not planned on was that Heloise would not just think he was hot as well, but would be every bit as smart as he was. The two fell madly in love, freely mixing heady intellectual conversation with a very physical relationship. Inevitably, in a period before effective contraception, Heloise became pregnant. She ran off and hid at a relative's house in Brittany and begged Abelard to just let things be, as he had his career to think of, and she would not be the only woman in France with a child born out of wedlock. But Abelard, a moralist theologian, insisted that he loved her and would do the right thing, and so he went after her to Brittany, talked her into marrying him. Afterwards, she gave birth to their son, whom they named Astrolabe because they were hipsters before it was cool. 
When her uncle found out, he was furious, not because his niece had had sex and had a baby, but because she was now supposedly married to a soon-to-be-disgraced cleric with no prospects as a result of an affair that went on under his nose, damaging his reputation. In the grand tradition of Breton nobles, her uncle did the calm and civilized thing, which is to say that he and a gang of presumably Gaelic-speaking hooligans tracked Abelard down, beat the living daylights out of him, and cut off his balls. Heloise was unceremoniously dumped into a convent, and their child was spirited off to a monastery. With the affair out in the open, Abelard's many, many intellectual enemies smelled blood in the water, and he ended up getting convicted of heresy, and some of his works were burned. But by that point, he had left the intellectual world of the Paris University and had retired to a monastery. But that's not the end of the story, because these were probably the two smartest people in the Western Hemisphere at that time, and a little thing like getting imprisoned in a monastic order wasn't going to keep them down. Eloise and Abelard both separately ended up becoming the leaders of their own orders within a decade. Once they had attained such a station, they began to exchange letters, reflecting on the past with the ultimate purpose of Abelard helping Eloise set up her own new convent, and with a secondary goal on Eloise's part of browbeating her husband into writing more. We have these letters, which are the ultimate source for this story. In these letters, Abelard viewed the entire affair as a horrible sin, terrible mistake, and prayed for God's forgiveness, which, you know, fair enough, getting your sleigh bells silenced would have a way of making a person suspect divine wrath. And to be fair, Abelard is well-spoken and articulate in an emotionally difficult context, where a woman he deeply loved is trying to rekindle a relationship that, last time around, got him banished to a monastery and cost him his favorite dice bag. And it is worth saying that Abelard spent much effort, not only in his letters, but in his career as a whole, praising women and building up their theological importance in Western Christianity. But Eloise is clearly the more impressive writer of the two, at least for a modern audience, and her philosophical wit and ability are really something to behold. The aged, injured, and humbled Abelard is still an intellectual powerhouse, but Eloise runs rings around him to the point where you'd almost feel bad for him. Like, girl, let it go, stop dialing your ex. I can't do either of them justice here, but she has become famous for this fantastic quote. God knows I never sought anything in you except yourself. I wanted simply you, nothing of yours. I looked for no marriage bond, no marriage portion, and it was not my own pleasures and wishes I sought to gratify, as you well know, but yours. The name of wife may seem more sacred or more binding, but sweeter for me will always be the word friend, or if you will permit me, that of concubine or whore. I believed that the more I humbled myself on your account, the more gratitude I should win from you, and also the less damage I should do to the brightness of your reputation. You, yourself on your own account, did not altogether forget this in the letter of consolation which I have spoken of, which you wrote to a friend. There you thought fit to set out some of the reasons I gave in trying to dissuade you from binding us together in an ill-starred marriage. But you kept silent about most of my arguments, for preferring love to wedlock, and freedom to chains. God is my witness that if Augustus, emperor of the whole world, thought fit to honor me with marriage, and conferred all the earth on me to possess forever, it would be dearer and more honorable to me to be called not his empress, but your whore. Heloise. Quote from The Letters of Heloise and Abelard, that's uh, letter two as read by Bree of the Pontifax podcast. Podcast footnote. The letters of Abelard and Heloise were preserved in no small part by the rise in popularity of the courtly romance genre in the decades after their deaths, about which more in a moment. 
The upside of this is that these letters became very popular and have had multiple translations into English. The downside of this is that there are at least three generations of translations of their letters, and the earliest English translations, which took place during the Romantic movement, seem to have been a bit more interpretive in their translation style. While interpretive translations were part and parcel of the Romantic literature movement of the 18th century, these translators also seem to have smoothed out some of Eloise's coarser language, which can really undermine her point in some cases. Of course, the earlier translations are inevitably much easier to find for free online because of copyright law and all that stuff. That said, post-2000 era free translations are available, and I do encourage you to all look them up. They're a fun read and well worth your time. If you want a more detailed assessment of Abelard and Heloise in the context of the intellectual world of their time, I would also encourage you to go check out Peter Adamson's History of Philosophy podcast. He did a bunch of great episodes on Abelard, his nemesis St. Bernard, and on Heloise herself. Interestingly, in a final side note, Heloise is a historical figure that passes the Bechdel test, if you will. She wrote several practical treatises for the nuns in her convent on sort of philosophy-adjacent topics like medicine and theology for the nuns, without referencing, you know, any male philosophers or getting help from any male philosophers. They are, of course, a lot less fun than the sex-filled romantic tragedy that you find in the letters. But possibly still worth your time? End podcast footnote. Ultimately, the Abelard and Eloise story doesn't really do much to challenge the idea that sex and marriage had little to do with passion or love in the Middle Ages, nor that sex was a sin likely to lead to suffering. Indeed, this rather grim view of the situation was certainly prevalent in literature, both of the courtly and common variety. Famously, the courtly romances that emerged amongst the troubadours in the 1100s and 1200s came to celebrate a kind of tragic, passionate love that existed between men and women, but only outside of marriage. In these stories, a woman, invariably married, catches the eye of a brave young knight. The knight undertakes a variety of exciting services to society in order to prove he is worthy of the woman, before some sort of tragedy resolves the story, usually brought about by the two lovers giving in to their passions, consummating the relationship and being punished. Such a consummation is a sin, after all, and they are therefore punished. To unpack this slightly, courtly romances advanced a new idea that, in some sense, put women at the emotional core of the story. Men, who are usually just troublesome jocks, are driven by their feelings of love to become civilized and civilizing forces for society. They become cultured, do acts of bravery, and banish forces of chaos, like dragons and such. At the end, however, a physical act of love is ultimately still seen as an act of barbarism and must be punished. It probably goes without saying that the husband in these stories is basically just some mook, neither good nor bad. In the stories where he is actively bad, he is killed by the knight, who gets the girl and also all of her dead husband's stuff. While you could see some pro-woman elements in all this, it's important to keep courtly romances in perspective. The women in these stories are pretty two-dimensional. Unlike the real women of this era, they never took any initiative in their lives, simply existing as the objects of desire and judgment for the men who happened to be within eyeshot. Putting women up on this pedestal as an object of longing and desire often led, in these same works, to huge outpourings of misogynistic vitriol against women who were simultaneously cruel tempstresses and overly harsh judges. How dare she be so attractive to me, and perfect, and wonderful, and god I suck. I'm just gonna live in my mom's basement forever. Podcast Footnote one work of note in this latter category is The Romance of the Rose. The story is actually a philosophical allegory told in the style of a courtly romance, which did a lot to elaborate the thematic underpinnings of the genre. The poem is actually two poems, with the first part of the poem story written around 1235 by a quiet scholar named 
Guillaume Dolores, and is by all accounts a fairly enjoyable if mundane mashup of philosophical treatise and a knight in shining armor story. The second part was written around 1275 by notorious jock loudmouth Jean de Moon, and was initially accepted and popular in courtly circles as a continuation of the first part, despite being deeply misogynistic, long-witted, and somewhat muddled. It ends with the protagonist consummating the uh, conquest of his beloved Rose. Unfortunately for Jean, it also drew the ire of one Christine de Pizan, a woman born in Italy but who came of age in the French court during the first half of the Hundred Years' War. Christine was a unique talent, and had connections that allowed her to make a living as a poet after the death of her husband. Her work is humane, personal, and deeply relatable. But her best work, or at least the work that cemented her reputation and is most enjoyable to read today, is clearly her Letter of the God of Love, written in 1399. And this work can be described as nothing less than a Beyoncé-style takedown of Jean de Mun. The intellectual smacking he received was so thorough that Jean was forced to attempt a rebuttal, and of course he had his cadre of chads who didn't like a woman sticking her nose into the manly world of poetry and literature. But at that point, Christine found allies in the Franciscan and Dominican scholars of the era, who had come to dominate the universities of the time, and who had, not coincidentally, also been targeted in the second part of the Romance of the Rose for some vitriol from Jean. When the dust settled, Jean de Moon's work remained... Somewhat popular, but its fame was tarnished, and Christine had found a new wider circle of admirers. In the long run, it's pretty clear that Christine gets the better of the argument in the end, because we're still talking about her, and most people haven't heard of the Romance of the Rose. End podcast footnote. Literature of the Commoners was less high-minded in its goals, but it was no less dismissive of the idea of passionate, uh, loving sex between equals. Chaucer's tales always come up in this context, particularly in terms of the Wife of Bath and the uh, Miller and Reeves tales. But there are many other similar tales from France and Italy that reflect much the same concept. Contrary to many modern stereotypes, women in these stories are often portrayed as lust-crazed to an absurd degree, but then most of the literature we have from commoner classes is in the form of comic farces, such as Chaucer's tales. They contain useful information, to be clear, but it's hard to tell how to interpret broader social attitudes about something that is quite explicitly the source of our humor. It would be like, without any context, watching a bunch of memes and trying to figure out how modern people earnestly feel about cats. They clearly feel something. But what? Much of the other evidence we have for commoner attitudes towards sex relates to attitudes towards marriage and the law codes, each of which we will deal with in other episodes. And since this one is running long, I hope you will forgive me if I skip ahead to deal with the second half of the sexual dyad of this episode, uh, rather than attempting to delve into too much of the commoner stuff where there's not too much evidence, unfortunately, for this topic. So as such, the rest of this episode will be speaking about women who theoretically did not have sex at all because they were in religious orders. There were a range of ways for women to participate in religious life in the Middle Ages, and nothing so shows the conflicted nature of the church towards women than the real-world expressions of this fact. As we have addressed in earlier episodes, nuns were part of the monastic movement from the very beginning, and in the imperial years of the Celtic church, women were powerful leaders of monasticism. Monastic communities of this era often featured so-called double monasteries, where nuns and monks lived in twinned communities headed by a joint leader. While the men usually predominated, it was not uncommon for the leader of the women to end up as the most senior and respected leader of the community, especially given that these communities were often tied to local aristocratic families. For the church, at least theoretically, nuns were as admirable as monks in their adoption of the contemplative life. Quote, 
to his holy and very venerable sisters in Christ, living in the monastery which we established with God's aid and inspiration, Bishop Caesarius. Because the Lord in his mercy has deigned to inspire and aid us in establishing a monastery for you, we have also established for you spiritual and holy precepts as to how you ought to live in that monastery, in accordance with the statues of the ancient order, and in order that with God's help you may be able to keep them, while living perpetually in the cells of your monastery, invoke the presence of the Son of God with assiduous prayers, so that afterwards you may say with confidence, I found him whom my soul loveth. And therefore I ask you, sacred virgins and souls dedicated to God, who with your lamps shining await with clear conscience the coming of the Lord, that because you know that I labored to establish a monastery for you, you with your prayers might ask that I be made a companion on your journey, and that when you enter joyfully into the kingdom with the wise and holy virgins, you might obtain by your plea that I not remain outside with the foolish ones. May divine favor grant blessing in the present life to your sanctuary, which is praying for me and shining among the precious gems of the church and make it worthy of eternal blessings. End quote. As a result, early medieval nunneries filled much the same role as all-male monasteries. Troublesome nonconformists, orphans, and other excess population were placed into nunneries along with, presumably, some individuals who actually had the aptitude and interest in a religious life. But there were some practical issues that cooled male enthusiasm in this area. First, as the church hierarchy took a more firm control of monastic communities in general, double monasteries came to be viewed with suspicion and contempt, and the idea of an abbess ruling over them was uh, viewed with horror. The temptation presented by communities of the opposite sex near at hand was felt to be simply too great, with the nuns usually being blamed for the situations that resulted, likely a reflection of the popular stereotype of women as sexually insatiable. The following quote illustrates this point. In it, the Marktal Monastery of the Primostranistian Order, basically they decided to eliminate the female section of the monastery. There had been nuns there, but they got rid of it. And then in doing so, they said, quote, Since nothing in this world resembles the evil of women, and since the venom of the viper or the dragon is less harmful to men than their proximity, we hereby declare that for the good of our souls, our bodies, and our worldly goods, we will no longer accept sisters into our order, and we will avoid them as we do mad dogs. End quote. Over time, then, the double monasteries were gradually eliminated, though the concept would pop back up from time to time when new religious movements were founded, as we may see in later episodes. With the elimination of double monasteries and the tightening of hierarchical control, economic forces came to put increasing pressure on nuns. As I mentioned in the earlier episode on monasticism, nuns were not able to be ordained as priests, which meant that while monasteries generated revenues by chanting masses for their noble patrons, nunneries could not do that, and indeed drained manpower from male monastic orders in the form of confessors or priests that had to be sent to live near the nunneries. The perceived need to maintain sexual propriety magnified the situation, since you obviously couldn't trust just one man in a community of women. So generally, a small group of monks would have to be attached to the nunnery to minister to the women and to make sure that none of their own numbers strayed. Being separated from the resources of the monastery, subject to higher levels of scrutiny, and devoid of the hope of advancement within their own community, such assignments were not particularly popular amongst the monks. Beyond these theological practicalities, nunneries in this era had little in the way of ability to directly generate economic resources or serve social roles. Standards of propriety held by the church did not approve of women doing things like begging for alms, preaching to laypersons, or performing the roles of basic professionals like farming, blacksmithing, brewing, or teaching, even when some of these roles were commonly performed by women in wider society. 
All the church seems to have approved of was light textile work, like spinning, crochet, needlework, etc., etc. As a result, nunneries were not attractive places for rich families to donate resources, had difficulty generating their own incomes, and ended up being a net drain on the wider monastic system. Over time, the effect was that the foundation of new nunneries was rare, and that there was a higher than average rate of abandonment of smaller nunneries. The result of this was that nunneries simply did not have the resources for all the people who might want to join, or whose families might want them to join, as it were. As a result, it became common practice for nunneries to turn away anyone who wasn't noble, and would almost always turn away any woman who attempted to join unless they could supply a cash dowry. The dowry, which would otherwise go to their potential husband, could be quite substantial depending on the region and would help pay for the upkeep of the woman involved. This practice was ruled by the church to be illegal multiple times on a variety of bases, but with the church failing to provide any other way to support these institutions, these rulings were just ignored. With the formal avenues of the priesthood and monasticism closed off or heavily restricted, those religiously inclined adopted a number of halfway measures over the centuries of the Middle Ages, with the most notable exceptions being the Anchorists and the Beguine movements. Of these, the Beguines were probably too late for our discussion, so let's focus on the Anchoresses today. An Anchorite was, in effect, a hermit, and as such, had been part of Christianity from the very start of the monastic tradition. We discussed in earlier episodes how charismatic hermits would seek to separate themselves from society and end up surrounded by communities of acolytes, leading to the first monastic orders. Well, into the early Middle Ages, men and women of all social classes felt this urge to separate from society, and many felt that monastic communities did not provide the isolation they needed to properly fulfill their spiritual goals. Over time, however, hermits came to be viewed with suspicion by the church, and it's fair to say that raging troops of Vikings and Magyars may have created some security concerns, so the Anchorite movement developed. In this system, the hermit would take a vow, undergo a ceremony similar to a funeral service, and then seal themselves in a cell attached to a church in such a way that they could hear mass, give confession, be given food, and pass chamber pots outside. Later on, these cells would develop into small housing units with room for wealthier anchorites to have a servant. In any case, the inclusion of vows and an ability to interact with formal religion made the church hierarchy satisfied with the system, and it turned out that the anchorite lifestyle had some major practical advantages for women in this era. Notably, because they were attached to a church, they didn't need to pull priests away from other duties, and because they were basically sealed in, it did not damage propriety for them to interact with the priest. Economically, the anchoress was just supporting herself or a very small household, rather than all the trappings of a monastic community, and so it was possible for them to generally make ends meet with the textile crafts they were permitted. But the biggest difference was that these holy women were not off on a mountaintop somewhere, they were in the town. And while the church hierarchy did not see these women as holy enough to act as priests or to preach, the common people and lower orders of the clergy definitely saw these charismatic hermits in their midst as having a special connection to the divine. Members of the community would seek out anchorites of all genders and ask their advice on the difficulties of daily life. And while cash or food donations to the hermit were not required, giving donations of worldly goods to help support holy people was considered a good deed by the church. The spiritual life of the anchoress was increasingly to be identified with a new and important strain of Christianity, that of mysticism. Based on more emotional interaction with the divine rather than a reliance on scripture that most people couldn't read in this era, there was always a bit of a tense relationship between mysticism and the church hierarchy. At the same time, mysticism was seen as a potentially genuine form of religious experience, and it had some logical underpinnings that the church leadership had difficulty denying. 
and as such it would be cautiously encouraged by some sections of the church hierarchy and many members of the sort of church intelligentsia. Within the logic, or should I say the anti-logic, of Christian mysticism, it was felt that reason and education were not particularly important parts of religious experience. Indeed, it was held up as a virtue that Jesus and the apostles were like poor, ignorant carpenters and stuff, right? So having poor, ignorant person be your mystic wasn't necessarily a problem. As such, women were not only able to participate as mystics, their status as supposedly less reasonable and less well-educated people fed into the narrative of their holy status. If a mere woman was saying theologically correct things, surely this must be divine inspiration, because women could not possibly understand the teachings of the church otherwise. Ultimately, the access women had to mystical religion fed back into the monastic communities, where female intellectuals of the era were able to utilize the connections of the monastic network to disseminate their mystical writings and get status and influence within at least the intellectual parts of the church hierarchy. The rise of mysticism is going to be a major theme in this show over the course of the next season, and women had a strong role to play in this process, for better and for worse podcast footnote. I had to make a decision in this area as to whether or not to include Marjorie Kemp in this episode or in a future one. For those of you who know who Marjorie Kemp is, uh, you know that it was something of a tear for me to not include her in this episode just because of length restrictions and the timing of her life and everything. For those of you who don't know who Marjorie Kemp is, you're in for a wild ride, but not right now. End podcast footnote. Ultimately, I think the image of the women we have seen in this episode is one where their relationship to sex and the importance put on sex by men helps to define their status in society, regardless of their class in many cases. While all sex was regarded as sinful, male sexuality was considered natural and forgivable. Depending on the author, women were considered to be weak and stupid, and therefore more susceptible to their insatiable sexual appetites. And while male sexual incontinence was provided an outlet in the form of prostitutes, female sexuality could ruin a person's reputation forever, as it did in some ways for Heloise. This mismatch was a recipe for chaos, and so the church came up with somewhat torturous explanations that allowed sex within marriage and for the flourishing of prostitution in urban areas and for its likely existence in the countryside as well. As with all people in the Middle Ages, a woman's place in society was defined by her relationships, and some of the strongest relationships that created this definition were those that were sexual in nature. Ultimately, this situation did serve to create some social protections for people working as servants that did not exist in previous eras of European civilization, but those protections varied widely by jurisdiction, and of course they only held so long as the powerful men involved chose to respect the rights of the nearly powerless women in their households. On the other hand, women who didn't have sex, either due to age or a religious vow, had some access to respect and status. Elderly women were shown deference and respect uh, within the bounds of their station in life, while nuns and mystics were regarded as worthy of praise and as deeply holy individuals due to their conquest of their frail human natures, particularly as mere women. At the same time, the fact that they were women subjected them to a litany of limitations and disabilities not suffered by male clerics, and their commitment to their vows was the subject of constant suspicion and frantic patrolling by male clerics, many of whom were themselves frequent customers of the stews. More troublingly, nuns could not become priests, and so were a drain on their religious orders. As such, the scope for advancement within the church hierarchy was severely curtailed. But there remained, throughout the Middle Ages, a scope for local prestige and for the divinely inspired, even international acclaim and sainthood. I'd like to close today with a pair of quotes, which are notably a bit long, but I think worth it. First up, a poem by the Countess of Dia, one of the few known women troubadours. She wrote, 
I should like to hold my knight naked in my arms at eve, that he might be in ecstasy, as I cushion his head against my breast. For I am happier far with him than Flora sur Blancheflor. I grant him my heart, my love, my mind, my eyes, my life. Fair friend, charming and good, when shall I hold you in my power and lie beside you for an hour and amorous kisses give to you? Know that I would give almost anything to have you in my husband's place, but only if you swear to do everything I desire. And that quote was read by my friend Jess. The last quote is a continuation of the quote that we opened the episode with. It's fairly long, but the context is that it's by a bishop who was touring Greek nunneries in southern Italy that had been left critically without support as a result of changing geopolitical situations. You'll note from the dates that it's fairly late in our time scale, but I think that what it tells us about the treatment of nuns when things go poorly with monasteries is telling. I'll just read this one myself. Monastery of the Forty Saints, 11th of October, 1457. On 11th October, we came to the Monastery of the Forty Saints, where we found a very young abbess, about 17, named Romana, with a certain nun named Elisabetta, whom we examined. And we first asked whether the abbess said the office. Elisabetta said that she knows it together with her. When asked whether she preserves the property of the monastery, she said that she preserves them well, but the proctor of the church, namely the protopapa, holds all the church's property because the abbess herself is a youth and administers none of the church's property. When asked about the honor of the aforesaid abbess, she said that she is absolutely honorable and discreet in her speaking, fasts during all the 40-day periods of fasting, and never eats meat. When asked how the abbess provides for her, she said that she takes good care of her, and they drink and eat together, except that they keep their grain separately. When asked about Mass in the monastery, she said that it is rarely said because they cannot find a priest. Sister Romana, abbess of the aforesaid monastery, when asked whether the nun obeys her, she said that she is very obedient and says the office with her every day and is discreet in her actions and does everything good. In this monastery, we see that the church has been well treated. When this was finished, we admonished them as is fitting and gave them chapters similar to those we gave to the others, which they promised to observe in violet. The Female Monastery of Santa Candelora of the City of Bova, 28th October, 1457. On this day, we visited a female monastery within the city of Bova, which is called Santa Candelora. In it, we found a certain simple-minded abbess. This monastery lacks income, and she has nothing but three gold coins and lives by her labor. We admonished her as is fitting and left her in peace. The Monastery of Santa Anna, early November, 1457. While we were at the aforesaid monastery, the monastery of San Filippo de Aguiro, we also visited three female monasteries. At the first one we visited was the monastery of Santa Anna, where we found an abbess named Caterina and three nuns, Marina, Anastasia, and Magdalena. We first examined Marina in the following way. Sister Marina, when examined as a witness, said that the abbess says the office together with her nuns as far as they know it. They always keep the monastery closed so that no one enters except for the chaplain and the church's proctor. When asked whether the abbess was chaste and honorable, she said that the abbess, as well as the nuns, were absolutely chaste, and she said that the abbess treated the nuns well, as her spiritual daughters. She also managed the monastery's property well. When asked whether the other nuns are obedient, she said that they are very obedient, have no personal property, always wear the habit and wool shirts, and keep the 40-day fasts and do all good things insofar as they are able. Sister Anastasia, when examined as a witness, said the same thing as her neighbor, in effect, but in different words. Sister Magdalena, when examined as a witness, said the same thing as her neighbor, in effect, but in different words. 
Sister Katerina, the abbess of the said monastery, said that all the nuns are obedient and most chaste with regard to their bodies, and they do the things that they ought to do like good and perfect nuns. Then we made an inventory of the items noted below found in the monastery. They are one gospel book, one epistle, one book with four gospels, one triodion, one book of prophets, one catanuction, liturgical book concerning Lenten practice, one anastamion, one menologion, one pair of white vestments, one chalice of pewter, two chasubles, one book of hours, four tablecloths, one curtain, one coverlet, one carpet, one pair of sheets, a large set of bedding, two beds, three boxes, two benches, a small set of bedding, one pair of sheets, one carpet, two cauldrons, one chain for hanging things, one spit, one tripod, four buckets, two beams. We then admonished them as is fitting, but we did not give them chapters, because we left Brother Romano, abbot of the monastery of San Filippo de Agrio, in our stead with a specific commission. He has to teach them about all the necessary things as is fitting. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.